We acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Turrbal and Yagara people, and their elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded and flood media is recorded on stolen land. Hi everyone, welcome to Floatcast. Matt here. Uh, today I'll be talking to Penny Allman-Payne, who's a secondary school teacher and branch president for the Queensland Teachers Union. Now Penny's been a teacher for almost 30 years and she's here today to talk with us about the state of education and the teaching profession in Queensland and across the nation. So Penny, um, you've been a teacher since I believe 1993 and you've taught all across the state as well as in the UK. Can you start by telling us a little bit about uh, your background as a teacher? Um, perhaps how you got into the profession and then some of the different places that you've worked? Yeah, sure, Matt, um, and nice to talk to you today, uh, and hi to all the listeners. Um, I started teaching because I, I actually started off doing a human movements degree at the University of Queensland because I originally wanted to work in sports administration and journalism, and the course that I chose was actually cancelled at the last minute, so I started off doing human movement studies and originally had thought that I would probably um, do exercise physiology. And then I met my future husband in the first year of my degree and he was actually doing human movements education. And so after my first year of study, I decided that actually it might not be a bad idea to have teaching um, as an option. So I continued on with my exercise physiology major, but I also included um, education in my degree. So when I graduated um, along with my, by that time, husband, um, I had a Bachelor of Human Movement Studies education, which meant I was qualified to teach uh, physical education uh, and health and science. So uh, I started teaching in Brisbane in 1993. I started at Kenmore State High School. And at that time I had, or my husband and I had one child who was six months old and I was actually pregnant with our second child. And so we did our first year in Brisbane. My husband was at another school in Brisbane. And at the end of that year, uh, which was common back then, it's not so common now, and that's something we could probably discuss later on in the podcast, uh, we were given what was called a required transfer. So at that stage, when you signed on to Education Queensland, you basically meant that you could be sent anywhere in Queensland. And at the end of our first year of teaching in Brisbane, and by the end of that year, we then had two kids under the age of two. Uh, we were given a required transfer to Gladstone. Uh, and I remember being told that we were being transferred and being really quite stressed about it because I um, had determined that there were no childcare centres in Gladstone. And as I said, we had two kids under the age of two. And I remember sitting in my principal's office and saying to him, you know, what do I do? Like, we've been sent to Gladstone and who's going to look after our kids? And he looked me straight in the eye and he said, look, you could do what my wife did. Uh, she resigned. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, no, I don't think that's the best plan. So um, we had a deputy, I had a deputy principal at that school who was really quite lovely and helpful and he approved some couple of days leave so that Darren and I could go to Gladstone to try and find family daycare to look after our kids for when we transferred the following year. So we trekked up to Gladstone and we spent six years working uh, in Gladstone at both two of the high schools uh, 
in in that town and at the end of that six years we decided that we actually wanted a bit more of a challenge so we then got a transfer uh, to Bamiga P12 school which is uh, now Northern Peninsula Area College and it's right on the tip of Cape York so it's actually in the Torres Strait um, Education District and we spent uh, three years there then we transferred uh, from the Torres Strait down to Bundaberg and we worked in the Bundaberg region and I also taught out at Jinjin and then I took a break and I actually went um, and did a law degree um, but while I was doing my law degree I was still teaching part-time both in Brisbane and in Bundaberg because I was commuting backwards and forwards from Bundy to uni uh, and then we spent when I finished my law degree we went to the UK for a year my husband taught over there for 12 months full-time and I taught part-time in a UK school uh, while I was also completing my Masters of Law. Then we came back to Australia and we relocated to Brisbane so that I could practice as a solicitor for about five years. Uh, and at the end of that five years, I decided that actually what I really liked doing the most was teaching. So I actually went back um, and taught at a high school, a state high school in Brisbane, and I taught there for six years. Uh, and then in the last three years, my husband and I have gone back out to the regions again and we're currently teaching in Gladstone. So, yeah, we've pretty much taught in just about every region across the state, uh, as well as that stint for 12 months in the UK. Yeah, no, that's um, fantastic. That's uh, very interesting to me that there is such a huge diversity in the places you've taught. I was going to ask you a bit more about Bamaga which uh, I had to look up, which is on the very tip of Cape York, um, which is very much a remote community. And you said that's one of the places where you became really aware of the impact of a government policy and the decisions that get made um, around education on people's lives. So can you talk yeah. a little bit more about what it was like teaching in Bamaga? Um, and living in Bamaga? Yes, I can. Um, I guess the first thing that I would say is I think it's was a really worthwhile experience um, and I certainly don't think it's one that you can necessarily pre prepare for um, as, a, as a white individual um, going to live in community and on community. Uh, but I think it's really worthwhile and we certainly learnt a lot. And um, I remember... When we first decided to go, our girls were um, had just finished year one and two in Gladstone. And one of the things that we considered, you know, when we decided that we would transfer somewhere to the Cape was the fact that we would have our girls with us and they would need to go to school in the community in which we were working. Um, and so a big part of us choosing to go was also because we thought it would actually be a really great experience for our, our, our kids. Um, to experience what it's like to be the other. Um, and I think we can say that it certainly was like that and it was a really good learning experience for them. Uh, I remember being there the first day that we got there. Um, we flew in and it's, yeah, it's very remote. For six months of the year, you can't get there by road. The only way in or out is by plane. And we were staying at the Seisha Caravan Park while we waited for our furniture to arrive by boat from Cairns. And so we went down to the jetty and all the local kids were playing on the jetty. And our two girls sort of walked onto the jetty to see what was going on. And 
a whole bunch of local kids came up to say hello and you could see how our girls felt really uncomfortable because it was very clear that they were obviously different Um, and I thought that that was a really good experience for them in learning how to um, develop empathy for people who who are not in their usual community or who are who are treated um, unfairly or discriminated against by others Um, and I remember that evening going back to our um, accommodation and 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 because our kids had really white blonde hair all the indigenous kids wanted to touch their hair and feel their hair and touch their skin and because they were just so obviously different and they're all kids like they're all about six and seven years old and one of our daughters um, was not a very touchy-feely kind of kid she didn't even like it if Darren or I sort of gave her a kiss or a cuddle a lot of the time and I remember putting her to bed and her lying in bed with the innocence of a six-year-old and saying to us mummy how long do we have did you say we have to stay here and I said oh we have to stay two years sweetheart but you know we might stay longer and she said oh can we please just only stay two years because I'm not sure if I'm the sort of person that goes for black people and I thought that was the innocence of a six-year-old who felt so uncomfortable because she could see that she was different. The kids wanted to touch her and feel her and she wasn't used to that. And I thought this is precisely why we've come because this is gonna be a great learning experience for our kids. And I can honestly say as a parent now of a 27 and a 28 year old that I think that experience was really powerful for them. And they've grown into two really um, thoughtful, empathetic, um, young women who know how to deal with and can can understand and appreciate difference. Um, but in terms of what it was like to work there, um, I think that was my first ever experience in just how much inequity there is across the state system. Um, we were at Bamanga P12 School, which as you said is on the very tip of Cape York, but it's not the only high school in the Torres Strait district. The other high school in that district is on Thursday Island. And it was really clear that the government had made the decision that Thursday Island would be their flagship school. Um, Anna Bly was the Minister for Education at the time. And any time that they wanted to make an announcement or you know, tell Queenslanders across the state what they were doing in Indigenous education across the Cape, they would go to Thursday Island State High School, which was, you know, really well kept, got lots of maintenance money spent on it, got new buildings, was, you know, beautifully painted, had a great library facility and the like. And yet across the water where we were, um, our classrooms were badly in need of a paint. Um, I remember one year my junior secondary teachers because I was a head of middle school there basically decided that they were so fed up with the fact that the government wasn't going to do anything that they all bought their own tins of paint and painted their own classrooms every time it rained our classrooms downstairs would flood and if you're familiar with what the weather's like on the Cape that's a lot Um, and no amount of sort of advocating and arguing to government that that needed to change seemed to make any difference it just fell on deaf ears We'd been promised a library since I don't know when and in the entire time that we were there, it never happened. And I remember my parents coming up um, one at one stage when we were there and we took them on a tour of the school and both of my parents are actually 
um, originally teachers and so they were quite interested and we, we took them around the school and we showed them what it was like and I remember my parents being just really so aghast at the fact that there was just this complete lack of um, funding and care for this particular school and so when they went back to Brisbane they decided that they were going to write to the education minister and say how they'd visited Cape York and um, they'd been to Bamega P12 school and they were just so disappointed in the lack of money that had been spent on the facilities and the flooding and and what was the department doing about that and the government's response to that was our principal actually ended up with a please explain letter from the education department on his desk asking him to justify to my parents why it was that things were the way they were in our school. And I remember just thinking, you know, this is so broken. Um, you know, when a, when a member of the public asks for an explanation as to why the government is not appropriately funding um, a particular state school, the way that they deal with it is to just put it back onto the principal who has no control over those decisions whatsoever um, and ask them to justify that decision. So that was quite a learning experience for me. Um, I remember there were several times when Anna Bly came to the Torres Strait to make education announcements and we continually petitioned um, her office to ask her that you know when she next came to visit could she take the trouble to take the 40-minute ferry ride that it is from Thursday Island across to Bamiga so that she could see for herself uh, the situation in that school and every single time she came she just refused and we never even got a response um, and then the second thing that or the third thing that happened I guess that really opened my eyes to the way that government uh, doesn't work uh, was it was during the time that we were there, it was around that time that the government said that they were going to engage in a whole series of consultations um, with Indigenous communities and that it would be about a whole raft of things, uh, including um, discussions about whether or not communities would need to be dry communities, um, but also, you know, health, education, a whole range of things. And I was very privileged, actually, to have been asked by uh, the local Indigenous community to be one of the people who was present at that consultation with community. Uh, and I remember we sat down around the table, all the government um, representatives and the minister had flown in that morning and we were meeting, I think, down at the council chambers. And the consultation started with the government representatives basically saying to the people in the community, um, we're having a consultation about X, Y and Z. Here are all the things that are non-negotiable that we're not going to actually be consulting with you on. And then here are the few things that we're going to let you have a say about. And I just remember being so incensed on behalf of the community that, you know, here was the government telling everyone around the state how they were engaging in this process of consultation, when in fact the reality was that they'd already predetermined you know, 65% of the things that they were actually going to do um, and basically literally came into community and just told them how it was going to be. Um, so I think I can safely say that that was probably the time in my life where I realised that politics and government's really important because the decisions that they make have real ramifications for things, including education. Yeah, okay, well, um, so it's just um, theatre, basically. So they decide what they're going to do and 
they have uh, the school on Thursday Island that's supposed to be um, that's the one they can talk about that's the one they can advertise to say look how good we are and look at everything we're doing up in the Cape but actually it's just about showing up trying to look good trying to say oh we've definitely consulted with people but actually it's all for show yeah, and look, I think you can see parallels even now in this election um, where they're doing exactly the same thing. So the other day, Grace Grace was making an announcement about education. I think they were, Labor was saying that they were going to match the 4,000 teachers that the LNP are saying that they're going to bring into education in the next four years. And, you know, the place that she chose to do it was the new Fortitude Valley High School, which is state-of-the-art, just been built, you know, has all the bells and whistles. Um, and, and, you know, making the announcement from there so that it looks for all and sundry across the state that, you know, that, yeah, education is being um, really well funded and yet the school that I teach at at the moment is nothing like Fortitude Valley State High School and, in fact, um, most years the maintenance budget has already been spent within the first two to three months of the year. Um, you know, I teach in a building that, and I'm not without a word of a lie, looks exactly the same as it did when I taught in that same building in Gladstone when we were there 20 years ago. Um, very little has changed. Um, you know, it needs a coat of paint. There's no curtains on the windows. The air conditioners are the same ones that were there when I was back there um, the first time round. They sound like a refrigerated truck um, when they're on. They don't have any temperature control. It's either freezing cold or you have to turn them off and, and it's boiling hot. Um, and yet repeatedly, uh, whenever they talk about education, you know, they always point to those flagship schools that they have or the latest new one that they've built um, rather than acknowledging that the disparity um, across the schools in the system, even just within the state system, is really quite huge. Yeah, okay. Um... That's a good segue into, can you talk a bit about the school that you're teaching now? I mean, I know that you just have, but yeah, um, what's it like in the Gladstone area? Well, I think the first thing to say about Gladstone is Gladstone is a community that has gone from a significant resource boom through a bust and is now coming out the other side. So uh, the nature of the students and the families that we deal with has changed quite significantly over the last six to seven years, such that when we got there three years ago, um, Gladstone, I think, has one of the highest numbers of kids in crisis care in the state. Um, when the gas uh, construction boom ended, the property market crashed, and there was actually a concerted effort on the part of government to move families who were living um, on or who were, you know, single parent families or families who are reliant on social security um, were encouraged and in some cases facilitated to move to Gladstone because there was such a crash in the housing market that it was cheap uh, for people to rent there. So there was a real... Um, influx of families with high needs and, and need for high levels of, of government support, but not a concurrent um, increase in the amount of support being provided by government and councils um, into the community. So we have, as I said, high numbers of kids who are in crisis care. 
Uh, we have large numbers of families who have parents who are out of work and are reliant um, on Newstart, which, as you know, until very recently was just ridiculously low. Um, and so the number of kids at our school who can't afford um, to pay their student services fee because I'm not sure how many people are aware, but state school is not free. Um, most schools rely on um, the charging of what's called a student resources fee uh, for kids to have some of the things that they need, textbooks and the like. Uh, and that's a combination of, uh, there's an amount of funding that families get every year from the federal government to go towards textbooks and uniforms. It doesn't even come close to covering that, but essentially families can sign that, that check over to their school and then there's additional fees charged on top of that to cover anything and everything from photocopying to textbooks to pens in classrooms, you name it. Um, so there's a significant number of families who cannot afford to pay that upfront. And so they actually enter into a payment plan um, across the year so they can spread that cost out over the year. And they can even elect to have um, it taken out of their Centrelink payments, which I just find the fact I it really gets to me every time I walk into the office of our school and our school is not alone you see these signs in pretty much every state school you know where the cashier is that says you know to organize your center pay you know you can do x y and z and it just really infuriates me actually that we have a system where families who are on such low incomes as it is on Newstart and the like are having some of that taken out so that their kids can access a public school education. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of things that go along with that. It puts a huge um, burden on the school in terms of needing to fund additional positions for things like psychologists and guidance officers. Um, our school actually elects to fund out of its own budget um, extra guidance offices to, to carry the load that we have given the number of students that actually need additional support. Um, it, it also means that we have high numbers of kids who have um, additional education needs, students who are behind in reading uh, or numeracy and, and because we're not funded according to need, because Gonski never really got implemented properly, um, it means for a school like ours, students are disadvantaged in terms of the amount of money that our school gets relative to the actual level of need of the students that we teach. Uh, and that's a problem right across um, our system. Uh, you know, we've, we've reached a point where federal funding to education, 80% of federal funding now goes to independent schools. Um, Gonski talked about a thing called the Student Resource Standard, which was an amount of money that it would take to properly fund the education of a student at each stage of their schooling. Um, at the rate we're going in the next couple of years, state schools will be in receipt of roughly 90% of that Student Resource Standard, so there's a 10% shortfall, and yet independent schools um, most of them will be well over 100% of that standard. So there is in fact now 
more money going uh, to private independent schools than there is to some of our state schools. Um, and to me, in a you know, in a country where education should be universal and free, that's just appalling. Yeah, it's completely obscene, right? Like, oh, I just don't. There's no justification for it, and it's you know, it all started um, back in the Howard years, where there was this ideological fixation on increasing funding um, to private schools and independent schools, and it's just gotten worse and worse over time, and. I was reading something the other day that made the point that Australia actually, out of all the OECD countries, has one of the highest levels of funding in the world uh, to independent private schools. Um, and I mean, if I had my way, we wouldn't be funding them at all. That would be a choice that if parents want to make it, then they can, you know, it's open to them to fund it. But um, yeah, it needs to change because we're, what we're seeing is we're seeing the disadvantage gap uh, in the same way that we are in society more generally, we're seeing that just on the increase in education. The gap between disadvantaged schools and advantaged schools is just getting wider and wider. Yeah, it seems, I mean, it seems there's no obvious reason why a private school should get any money because it is a private school. It's kind of obvious, I think, why that happens because our politicians send their kids to private schools. Um, and it seems like part of a broader pattern. I think we talked about this with Kia Milburn a little bit on our last episode, how the, the underfunding of our public schools and our public systems is matched by an overfunding of um, the private system of private schools and corporations and private enterprise, uh, this corporate welfare system, essentially, where it's not just that we're underfunding the public system that benefits um, these, uh, you know, underprivileged and disadvantaged people is not just that we're withholding money from them, it's that we're actually pouring money into these systems that are already massively overfunded and that only benefit the um, children of the elite, essentially, um, and that seems to me to be appalling and I think we should stop doing it immediately. Yeah, and look, I think the other thing is because I've I've had this conversation many times and I think um, when I was working as a lawyer, I was working in a large um, national law firm. So, you know, working in an environment where pretty much everybody had been to um, a reasonably wealthy private school and I used to have... Um, I used to have discussions almost weekly with my supervising partner um, we, about sort of the state of the world, I guess. And as somebody who had gone through a private schooling system into a private sphere of work, um, we used to have really interesting discussions about our perspectives on things. And, and one of the points that I used to make, because one of the arguments that people who want to have their kids in, in private schools often make is this idea that, oh, but if I put my child into the public system, um, you know, it would cost the government so much more because at the moment, um, you know, I'm paying fees to top up my child's education. But it's got to the point now where the amount of government money flowing into those schools 
in some cases is higher than what is flowing into public schools so that the government, we would in fact save um, if we weren't putting that money into those schools. But even taking away the economics of it, I've always taken the view that one of the reasons why public education can be allowed um, to, to be ignored and to fall behind is because many of those people who are invested in a good education are simply allowed to opt out of that system. And if you had every person required to send their student, their child to a public school, then everybody would be invested in that being the best system that we could have. And I think that's part of the problem that rather than, um, as you said, you know, politicians arguing for that system to be properly funded and made better, they don't do it because they themselves are part of that cohort of parents who just opt out of that system and put their kids somewhere else. Um, and, I, and I think that that in itself is very corrosive because it means that as a community and a society, we don't all have a shared vision and a shared um, reason for wanting our public schools to be the best that they can be. Absolutely, yes. So, yeah, I agree. Um, so let's talk a bit now about uh, you're a trying to remember I've got it here but um yes you're a, a branch president for the Queensland Teachers Union yes and, and I'm a workplace yeah, representative and a workplace yeah. representative yeah um so can you talk a little bit about how you got involved with the QTU and what kind of work you're doing for them and what kind of work they do okay so um I've been a member of the Queensland Teachers Union since I started teaching um, and I think one of the features of the Queensland Teachers Union is that, you know, as I said, ever since I've, I've been a teacher, which is nearly 30 years and long before then, the Queensland Teachers Union has had over 90% of all teachers are a member of the union. And in fact, for a lot of the time, it's sat as, as high as around the 95, 98%. So um, it's been a, a union. Teachers have always been state school teachers have been a well-unionised workforce. Um, and I think even when we saw or have seen um, the, the flow or the exodus of people from trade unions, one of the reasons why the teachers union has managed to keep so many people as members for such a long period of time, even when people were leaving other unions, is because part of your union membership includes um, legal representation if you ever have um, a parent um, who makes a complaint against you in your work. And I think that that's always been something that teachers have really valued and has, has sort of kept them in their union, even if they, you know, they've, they've made the decision that they don't necessarily think that they're doing everything they want them to do industrially. It's a good form of protection to be within the union. So... That's, that's been a really big draw card for people to be part of the union. But certainly um, earlier on in my teaching career, I can point to some really significant wins um, that the unions had. So um, way back around about the time that I 
we were first teaching in Gladstone the first time, so in the, the mid-90s, there was a push on uh, by the Borbidge government to bring in um, this idea of independent public schools, which was really creating almost a two-tiered system within the government, the one government system. And teachers pushed back really hard on that and, and there were... Um, I, I distinctly remember participating in um, industrial action and there being large meetings of, of teachers right across the state um, and, and in pushing back on, on that reform and, and, and we were successful and we stopped that reform going through which would have been really detrimental um, to public education and certainly um, around uh, enterprise bargaining as well the union in the past has been very, very strong um, in advocating for its members and getting good outcomes. I think that in the last um, the last five years or so, maybe, uh, maybe a little bit more, um, there's been a view amongst an increasing number of people within the union that the union isn't necessarily performing as well and advocating as strongly for its members uh, when it comes to industrial um, relations and enterprise bargaining as it was in the past. I know that um, in the most recent round of enterprise bargaining there was a real view amongst teachers that the union wasn't doing enough um, to address issues around workload um, and I guess for a bit of context survey after survey after survey um, of teachers, not just in Queensland, but right around the country, tells us that teachers are increasingly under pressure in terms of excessive workload. Um, it's not unusual, um, certainly I know for myself, I would regularly do, a short week would be a 50 hour week and it's not unusual to do a 60 hour week um, for a lot of the time. You know, increasingly teachers are having to give up many of their evenings, weekends um, to keep up with the amount of work that's required. And I think it's telling when there's large numbers of teachers, particularly those teachers who are starting families, who the only way that they can manage their teaching workload along with um, their other family commitments is actually just to, to drop back to, you know, 0.6, 0.8 part time. And they're not really going part-time because they want to be part-time. They're going part-time because it's the only way that they can see to manage the increasingly excessive workload. So I think that there was a view in the last round of enterprise bargaining um, that the union hadn't done as well as it could have on that. And there were certainly a large number of members, I think, who were ready and willing to go out um, on strike to get a better deal. Um, but the union came to an agreement with um, with the Labor government. And in my experience, once the union executive says that they think something's a reasonable deal, um, a significant number of union members just fall into line and vote for however the union tells them to. Um, so I think that there is increasingly a little bit of discontent there and that the union could be doing better in that regard. Um, I think the response from teachers to the government's um, bribe, because I think that's the only thing it can be called, um, of giving teachers two extra days off 
for the Christmas holidays as the thanks for all of the extra work that teachers did during the pandemic to transition um, their classes from face-to-face to -to online, um, not plus a pay freeze. Um, the reward that everybody gets is is two days extra holidays. The, we get Thursday and Friday off at the end of the year. Um, but every part-time teacher across the state who doesn't work on Thursday and Friday doesn't get anything. So if you don't work on Thursday, Friday, then you get nothing. And I think the amount of discontent that that group of teachers is expressing is indicative of the fact that um, I think the unions are a little bit too quick to agree Um when it comes to pay, workload, etc., so I think there's work to be done there. Yeah, no, um, definitely, and because this affects everyone, right? This is something that it's not just a problem for teachers. It's something that if the workload is oppressive, you can't do as good a job, which means that your students don't get the education they deserve, which. Like, this is not just a niche issue for a, a handful of workers who are getting a raw deal, although it is that as well, but it affects the whole provision of public education across the state, which is one of the most important services that the state is supposed to provide, which means it's an issue for all of us. Mm. And I think it's really interesting, like, you know, teacher workload isn't, it's not just that we have... Um, a crazy amount of administrivia that we now have to deal with, which we do. Um, you know, the amount of um, paperwork that has to be done for just about anything and everything that we do now is insane. Um, we have a, um, in the state education system, they have a, a database, I guess you would call it, um, or the intranet not quite sure what the right term is, but essentially the computer system, you know, that everybody is expected to use, um, was supposed to be overhauled about four years ago because it's the same one that they've had since they introduced a computer-based system for the way that we work, and that hasn't been done. And it might seem like a nothing, but, you know, if I have a behaviour incident in my school and it involves, let's say, three students and I need to log that onto the system because absolutely everything has to be logged now, you know, you can't write it down on a piece of paper, it's got to go into this particular database. Um, The process for doing that is so time consuming and onerous, it might take me half an hour to put in that one incident report for that incident with those three kids because the software and the way in which it's been designed is so old that the process of going in and finding the student that you actually need to write the incident about you then got to identify, you know, the people in the school who it has to be referred to. You can't just click on them for a, in a particular list. You've actually got to go and search for each teacher or each admin person one at a time. Once you've found them, you've got to drag that across to another menu. Then you've got to go back and find the other one. Like, it's just this ridiculous... If anybody was working in private enterprise and was asked to use that system, um, they would think it was a joke. And yet, you know, you can imagine if you've got five to ten incidents in a day that you need to record and each one takes you 20 minutes to record just getting that done alone you know is massively time consuming um it was it wasn't the case you know 10 years ago that every single parent of all the students that you teach and if you're a high school teacher you 
at a minimum you have about 120 students you know every single one of those parents can now contact you on email and so the time that it used to take you to maybe sit down and plan a lesson that time is now taken up just reading the emails that you've got from admin other teachers in your school and the parents of the kids who you're teaching and then if you overlay that and I think this is the real the real issue if you overlay that with the fact that um, and this came out in the the New South Wales Teachers Federation actually conducted or is in the process of conducting an inquiry into the teaching profession at the moment and they held all of their hearings um, a couple of weeks ago and they had almost a fortnight of hearings where they heard from experts right around the country in relation to education and Professor Ian Hickey was one of the people who gave evidence and and he talked about the fact that the number of students that we now have with identified additional needs has risen exponentially and so we now have a system where teachers are being expected um, to differentiate lessons for the whole range of kids who they have in their classes who have all these additional needs and yet we're still running on the model that we've been running on since I started teaching which is that you get 210 minutes a week so you teach 17 lessons and you get three off to do all of that preparation supposedly for all of those kids who need differentiation across say the five six seven classes that you teach and similarly in primary school primary primary teachers get even less um, and yet the evidence tells us that the way to improve uh, educational outcomes for kids is for teachers to have significant amounts of planning time where they can collaborate with other teachers um, and that requires more time away from face-to-face -face teaching so that that work can actually be done. And yet we have a system where governments refuse to invest or fund um, what's needed to enable teachers to have that time to collaborate and work together and plan the sorts of learning experiences that um, can be differentiated for, for the whole range of students that they teach and, and that's not changing. Um, and I think ultimately until governments recognise that the biggest thing that needs to be done um, to change education is a massive investment in more teachers, not just the extra 4,000 that the LNP and Labor are talking about to accommodate um, population growth, but actual investment in more teachers so that we have smaller classes so that we have more time away from students to actually plan um, the teaching that those kids need. Until they actually deal with that, nothing's going to change and everything else is just tinkering around the edges. But they don't want to do that because that requires a massive investment in education. Yeah, no, that... This interests me because I think... I haven't ever taught at a secondary school, but I have uh, taught in a university. I um, ran tutorials at the University of Sydney briefly. And you can really see the same thing happening in universities with the explosion of administrative goals and administrative stuff and of just a huge additional workload 
of just paperwork and uh, tinkering around the edges and just extra stuff that you have to do at the expense of teaching time, which becomes almost secondary to the, um, like, the administration almost becomes the primary function of the institution, and then the teaching is um, shuffled off to the side. And you also have, yeah, this thing where you're expected to respond to the emails, like everyone in your class, or in your case, all the parents have your email, and you're expected to provide much more personalized feedback than perhaps you used to be, which in some ways is like, oh, like that's good. Like we do want people to have a more personalized learning experience, but it necessarily comes at the cost of a much greater workload for the people who are expected to do it. Um, and it's seems to me it's, yeah, it's a movement towards a more individualized and ultimately the idea of an education as a consumer good, as something that is tailored to the individual consumer, and but also in this case something that's still provided by the state. So we've got this expectation now that these state-funded institutions like public schools and universities are expected to provide a, a good and education as a consumer good, um, as uh, as if it were um, a, a privatized like luxury item almost, and that seems to me to be a, a very weird philosophy of education. Um, yeah, and I think it highlights uh, you know there are a couple of things too that sort of come out of that, and one is and I, I've read similar things um, from people who are university tutors and lecturers as you say um, you know particularly who've been quite vocal given the cutbacks that are currently happening um, in higher education and and I've you know reading comments that they've been making about marking and the amount of time that's allowed for that etc and I think it it points to this notion that one of the things that works against us I think as teachers is that you know teaching is is innately a caring profession. You can't survive in teaching for an extended period of time if you don't genuinely care about the students that you teach. It's just too difficult and it's too hard and you just, you know, you're not gonna stick at it. And so because teachers and university tutors and lecturers care, they find it very hard to say no and to push back when they're being asked to increasingly do things to increase the level of um, service that they're providing to their students. And so when you're faced with a mountain of administrivia, which you have very little say in not being able to do, so you can't push back against that, teachers are not going to turn around then and say, well, because you've asked me to do five hours of administrivia, I'm not going to spend, you know, that four hours that I might spend outside of class time on a Wednesday afternoon prepping everything for my year seven maths class who has seven or eight kids who just have such diverse needs that it takes hours to do that planning. And so I think in that respect, teachers get taken advantage of. I also think that the other thing um, that has 
certainly become apparent during the pandemic um, is that not only are teachers working, has teachers' workload massively increased, but when, when faced with the prospect of having to actually close schools for a period of time, many of the arguments that were being made by politicians and others as to why schools shouldn't close down were around the idea that we have lots of kids who are at high risk, kids who, you know, if school's not open, who's going to be looking after those kids, um, all of the supports that those kids normally are provided with would cease. And so I think what it points to is a wider problem whereby schools and teachers are seen as the panacea for all of those other things out in the community that are not being dealt with. You know, if there was sufficient support for families um, in terms of, um, you know, mental health support, health support, actually making sure that um, New Start and those sorts of things meant that people weren't living so far below the poverty line, you know, justice reinvestment rather than continual punitive approaches, all of those things feed into a situation in our society where the place that's meant to fix all of that stuff is schools. Because if, if, if what they're saying is we can't close schools because they provide all those other things for young people, then I think we have to ask ourselves the question, why is it that that's all been put onto schools? Because really, the job of a school should be to educate young people. And we should have a whole range of other services and supports that sit around young people, but that aren't required to be provided by teachers and schools. And I think that that became really apparent in the pandemic. And it wasn't until, you know, there was this threat that schools wouldn't be open, that people realised just how much they rely on schools to meet that need in, in the community. Yeah, definitely. Um... The other thing I was going to ask you about was uh, the curriculum and because you've said in your um, what you sent me before that curriculums are becoming too dense, too overstuffed and perhaps we're expecting students to learn too much. Um, so is, is that uh, what you think? And I'm, I, I suppose I'm interested in how this new approach has affected the curriculum design over the last couple decades and how what we're expecting students to actually learn has changed? Yeah, look, the curriculum is too dense. Um, as a, I, I've now taught, um, over the course of my teaching career, as I sort of said earlier, I started out as a health and physical education and science teacher. I transitioned across into teaching maths and did some further study um, to be able to teach maths. And because I have a law degree, I now I also teach legal studies and I'm currently the head of department of a humanities and languages department and across all of those subject areas it's really clear that the move to the Australian curriculum which has happened over the last decade or two such that um, you know right across the country supposedly we're all teaching to the Australian curriculum um, has has resulted in a curriculum that is extremely crowded um, as a maths teacher, 
it's not uncommon to be expected um, to teach a concept on Monday and for the students, students to be expected to have understood it, got it and be ready to move on to the next concept on Tuesday. And it makes it very difficult for you to, you know, work with kids who learn at different rates when you're trying to pack in all this content that's expected um, to be taught. A similar thing uh, happens in the humanities curriculum. Um, I'm regularly having discussions with my history teachers about how we're supposed to fit three units into a two-term semester. Um, and so we're continually having to make decisions and judgments about how we can reduce some of that content but still be reasonably true to what it is that we're being asked to do. I think, um, I'm not sure if people are aware, but when the Australian curriculum was being developed, this, this the idea was that, you know, because we have um, movement of students around the country and interstate, that we should all be teaching to one curriculum so that... Um, you know, there's less of an issue if you're coming from one school to another or one state to another. But not all the states have adopted the Australian curriculum as it was written anyway. Um, some of the states did take a look at it and said, this is way too dense, we're not covering all of it, and they just picked out the bits that they wanted. Um, Queensland originally sort of pretty much adopted it holus bolus. Um, then they went and did a rewrite and decided that they would try and pair it back a little bit but it's still really dense um, and now at a national level there's currently a review underway um, and supposedly top of the agenda is to actually declutter the curriculum. Um, I'm not sure how how they're going to do that <laughs> because I think I think, personally, I think that we just need to be able to say it'd be great if the kids could cover all this content, but ultimately, you know, there's a, there's a really core series of things that our kids need to be able to do by the time they finish school. And provided we've done those things with them, you know, we need to have flexibility um, with what we choose to teach across the rest of it. And I think, I think it comes back to this notion that schools and education systems have devolved those things that they should have held on to and they have mandated things that they should have devolved and given schools um, more say over. So in this, um, in the last couple of decades, the state education system in Queensland has devolved a whole lot of responsibilities out to schools and they all relate to funding um, and and management type decisions. So rather than, for example, central office making decisions about um, capital works that need to happen in all of the schools across the state and managing that program, they now give buckets of money to a school and tell them to make decisions about which buildings they're going to maintain, what their maintenance program looks like, um, you know, planning if they need a, a new piece of infrastructure, how they're going to do that. And all of that's been put back onto schools and principals. And yet decisions about curriculum are being made centrally 
and they're mandating everything that everybody has to do in their school. And yet research tells us that it needs to be the complete opposite. The things that should stay centralised are things like maintenance and infrastructure budgets. You know, there's no need for a principal in a school to be spending their day working out how they're going to divvy up their funds to keep a school maintained. That can be done much more efficiently and much more sensibly, I think, at a central or regional office level. And what principals should be concerned about is what it is that they're actually going to be, their school is teaching the students in their particular school because that actually is what needs to be tailored to students. And so whilst the research says give schools and teachers lots of say over curriculum and what they teach and how they teach it and hold on to at a central level funding decisions and decisions about infrastructure and staffing and all of those sorts of things. Education in Queensland and right around the country and in a lot of Western countries like the UK and the States, which are two systems that we continually follow and yet have some of the worst outcomes in the world, um, have done the complete opposite. They keep hanging on to really tightly curriculum and mandating what it is that we're teaching and how we're teaching it and they devolve out all the other stuff and so you could argue that you know admins in schools are spending a whole lot of time on stuff that's got very little to do with what's going on in classrooms and it should be the opposite yeah no um that makes a whole lot of sense to me and i definitely did not know that um so it's very good to hear you talk about it so um I could keep talking about this for a very long time, and there's probably a million more things I'd like to ask you, but we are getting to an hour now, so I am going to start wrapping this up. Um, I think we can perhaps close out on, uh, just to bring this all together, what would your vision be for Queensland education if you were in charge of the whole thing? Can you give us a sense of, perhaps more broadly, what would you like to see done and how would you like to see this all uh, put together in a way that would make much more sense for students and teachers? I think the first thing I would say is that we need to fix the broken funding mechanism first. So if I was in charge of education in Queensland, uh, I would be transitioning us away from giving any government funds to independent and private schools and I would be focused on putting all of that money into our public education system so that we can actually have the capacity to do the things that we need to do. Now obviously there's the bigger question about how we fund that um, you know, and I'm all for taxing, making mining companies and billionaires pay their fair share so that we actually have the money that we need um, to do what needs to be done in education but I think by not funding those independent and private schools that don't need that money that would be a good place to start. Um, second thing that I would do would be to make a massive investment so that we actually can free up teachers to be able to take the time that they need to collaborate with other teachers. Um, collaborating with other teachers on programs of learning, ways to differentiate for students, ways to engage students better, 
Um, all of the research says that professional learning communities are really powerful and we can't actually make those happen unless we free teachers up to have the time and space to do that. So I think having enough money in the system that we can actually reduce that face-to-face -face teaching time that teachers have to spend in front of students so they can actually do that really important work out of the classroom is another place that I would start. Um, I also would um, be wanting to fund a lot more uh, support in schools. So um, I think that the reliance that schools have to place on a federally funded program of chaplains in schools um, is not the best way that money could be spent. I think having um, a properly funded program where we have trained professionals in schools who are psychologists, more, more guidance counsellors, particularly in those schools where we have lots of students with high needs is really crucial. Um, and I guess, uh, finally, giving, taking back from schools all of that decision-making that's not necessary for schools to be making. So as I said, all that stuff around infrastructure and maintenance, which really should be um, managed at a central level by people whose expertise is, you know, building buildings and maintaining them, not teaching in classrooms, um, and bringing back the autonomy uh, into schools to make decisions about what, it, what it's best for us to teach our kids and the, and the best way for us to do that. And I think if we could do those things, that'd be a really good start. Yeah, um, yes, that all sounds absolutely fantastic and I agree completely. Um, all right, uh, so yeah, that was uh, Penny Ullman Payne uh, talking about teaching in Queensland. Um, I really enjoyed that and I really appreciated you coming on. Thanks very much, Matt. Like you, I could talk about education for hours. I know, I've really appreciated really the opportunity to, to do so today. Yeah. All right. Um, thank you. And yeah, to all our listeners, uh, we'll see you later. Bye.